Everyone, this is Ben Guest, and this is Benbo's podcast. Today's interview is with Gary Rubenstein. Gary is an educator and author. He's written two outstanding books about classroom management. And in this conversation, we talk all things education. Enjoy. Gary, thanks so much for being on. And let me start with your work has been fantastic in terms of looking into charter schools and the numbers behind what they're claiming. You've done fantastic work um, on classroom management. You've written two books on classroom management that we used when I was at the Mississippi Teacher Corps for art, training our teachers. I think, in fact, that's how we met. I, I gave you a blurb for Reluctant Disciplinarian, which is a great book. Um, and then you're just, you're, you're writing in your thoughts in general on education. So let me start with, why do we get education so wrong in this country? I guess the first question: you Do we get education so wrong, and, and you know, and how wrong do do we get it? Um, you know, compared to other countries, for instance, like does anyone is 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 there somebody doing it way better than us? Um, the way I think of it uh, is, I think we can all agree that we could do a better job. So this goes for the uh, the reformers. You know, they say we're doing terrible, and we could do a better job. And then people like me would say, you know, we're doing a pretty good job, but we can be doing a better job. And it's funny because we all agree that we can do a better job. I've taught at four different schools, and you know, every school I've been at, I've thought, oh, there are things that we're doing that. Um, we could be we could be doing much better, you know. Some of these decisions that are getting made are making us less efficient and making you know things worse. So um, we can do a better job, but I, I wouldn't say that we've gotten it wrong. Um, but I'd rather answer: What improvements would I make if I were in charge? So I do not think that teachers are um, taking advantage of the way, that we, so the way that we can so easily communicate with each other. So um, like right at this moment, every day, cause I'm doing teaching from, you know, I'm doing remote instruction and I am making an activity a day uh, for pre-calculus. And this activity takes so many hours to, to create. And once it's created, anyone in the country who's teaching this course could use this activity. And I'm doing it, you know, because it's my job to make these activities. But these activities that I'm making are, they're valuable. Like they're a commodity. Like somebody, if somebody was strapped for a lesson, that lesson's got to be worth like, you know, 20 bucks to them at least. And to a a school district, it's got to be worth like thousands of dollars. And I'm giving it away. I, I don't. I, I'm happy for anyone to use it, you know. But nobody is. Only I'm using it. I I, I posted on Twitter. Um, hey, here's a link to my to a folder that has my lessons for pre-calculus, you know, and I'm updating it each day. And that's just a free resource. I mean, perhaps I could make money off it. I'm not even wanting to. I want to share it. And I think most teachers, you know, I know there's a thing called teachers pay teachers. Um, but I think that there's not enough sharing of resources. And that's really, 
you know, the, the, what we say all the time, say all the time, you know, you don't want to quote reinvent the wheel. Hey, hey, Gary, uh, your audio go. So teachers all over the country are starting from scratch, searching for things on Google. So why is there not, to me, it should be federal, uh, a way to share resources that any teacher could go on and say, okay, I'm teaching, you know, systems of equations tomorrow. Oh, there's 100 different like lessons that people have made at different you know levels, and then maybe you know, uh, like a channel, you know, where someone can say, "Oh, I like Gary Rubenstein's lesson, so I'll use his." And again, I think teachers would just give this away, but it's worth like a billion dollars, you know, to have to have something like that. You know, all the money that gets spent on education, if there was a pooling of resources instead of so. We're getting it wrong in that way. Why think of how much effort's being used of everybody recreating the same lessons. Now I know, you know, someone may not want to teach my lesson exactly as I teach it, but the stuff I'm making is totally uh, adaptable. Anyone could take it and cut slides out. And it's just, I'm, I'm doing such a good job with my remote teaching, but I have not been able to uh, share. And I think this, is the bigger is true, you know, in general also. So people are not sharing ideas as easily as they can. And in doing so, we're not like evolving, you know, we're all like in our own little pockets. So I blame this on, uh, I think the federal government could be doing this. I think organizations um, could, be, could, could be doing this. I, I, you know, I know like Teach for America, you know, where's their, um, you know, bank of lessons that are like really nicely organized. I think if we had that, we'd be doing better in this country. So that's one thing that we're not doing well. Um, let, 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 let me um, add to that and then, then ask a follow-up with that, Gary. So when I was with the Mississippi Teacher Corps and we are, Teacher Corps is and we were an alternate route teacher training program and so this is 20 years ago, um, or almost 20 years ago that when I started, that you know we did something similar to what you're saying as far as just creating, I think it was just a Google Drive of um, each teacher that went through the program, the culmination was they had to do a two-week lesson plan. So these were lesson plans that were well-designed and been assessed by instructors and so forth. And we would just upload those to the, to the Google Drive. Uh, but what you said, and, and I apologize because I kind of, you know, asked a loaded question there at the start. Um, uh -huh. what, what you said early on was dividing resources. And you're talking about on a micro level, you've got this resource that other teachers could use. And I think that's the issue on a macro level. Something like charter schools, um, you know, we've divided resources. We've taken the communities, one of the, the most important things that a community can do, which is educate its children, and we've divided resources among multiple different schools, systems, et cetera. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, certainly the promise of charter schools was that they were gonna be a so-called laboratory of innovation. And we were gonna learn from them. Uh, you know, they are gonna experiment and then things that worked, they were gonna share and we'd all get to, you know, to, to, to benefit from it. 
but um, they didn't really know anything. So that, that, was, that was the biggest problem. They really didn't have any special tricks. Um, so they didn't have anything to share. And if they did have something to share, they didn't share it because that was going to uh, hurt them by giving away their, their secrets. Again, I don't think they had any secrets, but even if they did, they didn't share them. So competition uh, versus collaboration did not advance us at all. Um, there are other things that could be improved in education besides uh, sharing. Like, I think that we, um, and maybe this is because of standardized testing, but the focus on uh, reading and math, and I'm a math teacher, you know, and I, I love math. And there was a pretty good book that came out a few years ago called The Math Myth, um, where his argument was that we invest way too much money into teaching math in this country. And why do we need all this math? And he was also, he was misguided in some of his, he didn't have a good understanding of what math really is, but he was right about, he was right about that in my mind. We, um, kids are forced to take too much math. So even though I love math, I think forcing everyone to take it so many years takes away opportunity to do other things. So what if we cut a third of the math out and instead, I'm a big fan of um, musical instruments. You know, I, I, I just, uh, I think that when you cut music and band out of a school, you end up losing, like, I think people are trying to, something like chemistry, like, 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 like you take a, a food that tastes really good and you, and they try to like cut it into its chemicals and then say, oh, I see, you know, this uh, Cinnabon has, you know, this, you know, fructose in it. So we'll just add fructose to something else, you know, and, and they end up creating what we have now, which is all this math and standardized testing about the math. And then we took away music, you know, and um, I don't have statistics on it, but I think that what you learn from music is as valuable as what you learn from taking math. So they've tried to like um, use data. That's a big word, you know, we're data driven. So what, so data driven causes you to cut music out of your, out of your school and to add more math test prep. So we're totally misguided by un, under the guise of, of, of science, we've um, removed parts of school that were really in some ways the most important part. And we've, add an emphasis to things that were actually not that important. And in doing so, school isn't as meaningful as, as, as an experience. And that's really a, um, that's a problem. And I think we could improve schools if we, if we realize that and said, oh, wow, let's, let's add band and drama back into school and let's cut some of this math and, and cut some of the, um, Common Core, nonfiction, reading, emphasis. Um, what's the expression? Evidence-based, you know. So I think we've, we, I think we've uh, put emphasis on the wrong things. And in doing that, our schooling isn't as good as it, as it could be. So, so those are two like big things. And then, like you said, with um, the ed debates and the teacher bashing and the, you know, the charter schools, these things have all uh, been distractions 
that have educators have been so on the defensive about protecting ourselves from from the onslaught that we haven't even been able to focus on on innovations we're just too busy uh preventing ourselves from becoming extinct so those are all uh i guess another thing is like the people making money and and because they're making money they're like using it to like like there's a lot of good uh educational like software but it you have to pay for it and districts have to pay for it and they charge so much you know by the by the students and things like that so it feels like that stuff should just be free the government should just make it for the billions of dollars that are spent if you pay me uh one million dollars i could probably create a uh, a free uh i'll give it to the government and i could create a free like math platform that would be just as good as anything that's out there and they would save a lot of money so i feel like money's being spent improperly by the government on giving it to tech companies when it could be used much more efficiently so we're there's a lot of waste we're wasting money we're wasting time and we're fighting with each other and in doing so we are not uh as good as we could be what are your thoughts on Homework. There's been some interesting writing and research around homework the past couple of years. So I now I teach at Stuyvesant High School, which is you know known to be one of the top high schools in the in the country by a lot of measures. And I I do give homework. I try to give like uh, twenty to thirty minutes of homework in in math. And if um, if it's a lot more than 20 to 30 minutes, I think that's too much. So I do think some homework in, in math at least is important because uh, even though in class you try to try to teach it in class and assess in class so the students like learn it in class, but it's really not so bad if a student like doesn't learn it in class, a certain percentage of students, and those students, you know, go home and study the notes and practice doing the homework that way. So I think some homework is good, but uh, I think I see with my own kids sometimes, uh, sometimes homework is too long and um, it, you get diminishing returns on homework. So I, I do, uh, I assign homework. Uh, my son went to a school where they didn't give homework until like fourth grade, and I think that was good for him. But now that he has some homework, I like I like that there's some like come home and do some work. But uh, I'm I'm in the camp of homework should be pretty short. But I'm not in the camp of uh, homework is useless because because I, I have seen that also that homework doesn't do anything. Um, I know from my own. A lot of my, since I didn't go through a formal education program or take like uh, psychology, a lot of what I know or what I think about education comes from my own experience as someone who's tried to learn things and this goes into adulthood also. So I've taken piano lessons and I've tried to teach myself piano and I've taken chess lessons and I now like, you know, try to teach myself. And I think about like, how do I learn? And I'm, I'm not the only person in this world. Everyone isn't a clone of me, so it's hard to extrapolate, but 
I like learning like incrementally. So when it comes to like playing piano, you know, I like to do page one of the book, you know, and master that and then go to page two. But then there's also a philosophy like Suzuki, where you, you know, you start playing songs right away and you improvise on the first day, you know, and, and you learn that way. And I know there's different ways that people learn. The way I teach math is, uh, is how I learn, which is like slow and incremental. So homework uh, fits into that way of, of doing it where like, you know, the skills, there's a big debate, you know, do you want kids to, like, if I, if, if I have a kid who's taking piano lessons, do I want them to learn that incremental way and not be able to improvise? Or do I want them to, be able to, to improvise yet they can't read music? Well, uh, if you do the improvising only, you might have a kid who can't improvise or read music. Whereas if you learn to read music, you might have a kid who knows how to do both eventually. And someone might say, well, if you don't teach them how to improvise, they're gonna hate music. So they're not gonna learn either. It's a really tough, tough call. So, um, so I'm a uh, fan of some homework, but I don't believe in overdoing it. It's interesting, you mentioned chess and I was talking to somebody the other day about chess and I don't, I don't know much about chess, but they were saying that the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, it used to be before that, before people could share information online, it used to be that if you discovered some interesting um, set of moves or, or gambit or whatever it is, that you, know, you could explore that and you would kind of keep it to yourself and then you could use it in a, in a match or tournament or whatever. And now everybody's sharing and constantly iterating and iterating and iterating. And, and I think you're exactly right. That is something that we're missing in education. Again, just on a micro level, I know that the best lessons I taught were lessons that I had taught five or six times. And by the time you get to the fifth or sixth time of teaching that lesson, you know where the sticking points are, you know where the hiccups are, you know what to adjust. So, so having space and ways to iterate is, is key, I think, to improving. Yes, things, yeah, things evolve. I know in, in chess, I mean, some people probably still keep their ideas secret so they could use them in, in, their, in their tournaments. But what happens is that there's chess computers now. So, so those tell you what like, you know, the best move is. And so, that, so this is a good example where technology has really fueled you know, the, the evolution of, of the science. But in schools, there's a lot of disagreement about what the best way to teach is. And I hear it's called like the reading wars and you know, should nonfiction versus fiction, you know, the common core did not, did not help, you know, that that was a disaster waiting to happen. And it totally played out that way. And it's, it's really a shame because all the teachers said, no, you know, if you take fiction out of schools, you know, some kids aren't gonna like to read anymore. Um, and, you know, the, this, is, this is true if you overemphasize nonfiction reading and, um, and everything, every piece of writing has to be with the, you know, the evidence and find three examples from the story and to not write fiction, to not read fiction. Now, I personally don't like fiction myself, however, to, to read or, you know, or to write, but there's definitely, everyone's not me again, and there's definitely a value. And when you have someone, you know, like Bill Gates or whoever the board who made the Common Core, you know, basically say, 
we need we need 60% of reading to be nonfiction. It's just totally misguided. So I think it's hard because there are educators, you know, even with PhDs that disagree also. So it's not like every PhD in education believes that we should do this or that. And you could find support even for like the common core among uh, among PhDs. So it, so it is really, it's really hard. It's not as scientific as, as, as we would hope it would be, but um, some sort of a middle of the road type of thing seems to, seems to, to, to be best. Like in math, there's the um, constructivist versus direct instruction debate. You know, should we teach the kids math algorithms or should they figure them out for themselves? And of course the answer is something in the middle where you give them some opportunity to make some progress, but ultimately you eventually tell everybody, you know, hey, look, what you just did can be done is, you know, is equivalent to this thing. And um, eventually, you know, they won't be these extremes. I know in math, there was um, the Turk, Turk method, which was an extreme uh, uh, discovery based and, and, and the Common Core, I think, tried to build on that, but they, they didn't do it well. I think some people got too much power, like uh, the people who made the Eureka math curriculum. I mean, it's, it's, it's just terrible. You know, it's just a bad curriculum, yet it's used all over, all, all over the country. So bad ideas get to pl proliferate and um, good ideas don't. And it's kind of a mess what's going on so yeah. so it is, it is bad i you know i'm supposed to be this you know su supporter of public education who some people accuse me of you know it's perfect the way it is and anyone who's trying to reform it is you know is wrong and i definitely don't feel that way i feel like there's a lot of things wrong but they're they're not going to get fixed you know by doing you know charter schools and right. <clears throat> uh, private schools and yeah, and, and dividing and, uh, resources. Yeah. Uh, let's talk um, classroom management, although I don't even know if, if I like that term anymore. And that's how we initially got in touch uh, through, we started using your book, Reluctant Disciplinarian, to, as part of our training, um, as part of the training when I was with Mississippi Teacher Corps. And, I, you know, as, a, as someone who was a teacher, been a teacher, you know, my evolution with classroom management is, is vast. Um, how, how are you thinking about that these days? Well, it is, uh, so, so when I finished teaching my fourth year of teaching, and actually it was after my second year of teaching that I came up with the philosophy that was, that was in, the, in that book. So my first year, uh, I did a very poor job with, you know, it used to be called discipline. So classroom management is, is like the, the more evolved way of saying discipline. And, and I don't know what, they're, what they say now uh, for it. But so I had a terrible first year of teaching and uh, it was because uh, I, I didn't get to practice it enough and get to see that some of the ideas that you're told don't just work for you unless you understand why they work for some people. 
so I was too, I was too nice. I was too, I was also a bad teacher and I was unstructured in my lesson plans. And what I didn't realize is that I was causing, I was causing discipline problems through bad teaching. And then they couldn't, those problems couldn't be fixed through classroom management methods because the classroom management methods are only going to work if you're already uh, doing an okay job teaching the stuff because then you prevent people from wanting to misbehave. So if you make people want to misbehave, you then have too much on your hands. So I wrote this, uh, it started off as a workshop. I, I went to, to talk to the first year Teach for America teachers after my, after, my, um, after my first year, but no one wanted me to talk to them after my first year. But after my first year, I realized I need to do a better job teaching and simplify things. And then I also need to do a better job with classroom management. But if I could do a better job teaching, I won't have as many problems. And then I'll be able to do some basic classroom management. So what I did was in my second year, I um, got a lot much more organized with my teaching and I simplified my teaching and really became a much better teacher. But then I also got better with classroom management because I, I realized that some of this some of the methods that were in books were very, um, either they're outdated um, or they just never were gonna work. And the book I'm thinking of is uh, something called Assertive, Assertive Discipline, which actually started off great. They said that um, there's three levels of sort of uh, attitude that you can have. And there's hostile, which is not gonna work because it's gonna, Make the students, you know, really want to misbehave because they're 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 feeling they're in a fight, and they I forget what the word was for like if you're too like meek, um, but the middle ground was was called assertive, and that was a great like first chapter of that book. But then their techniques were things like um, give a warning and then write the name on the blackboard and then put a check by the name and then. So they had these incremental consequences. Uh, that, that was exactly my <laughs> consequence system, which you just described. First, right? Yeah, yeah, it came from a sort of discipline. And I realized that those things had no magic in them. So what you needed was uh, confidence and, or to, and to pretend you had confidence and to just be like what I wrote uh, in four words uh, in Reluctant Disciplinarian, I wrote act act like a teacher. Actually, I wrote, look like a teacher, uh, act like a teacher, and teach like a teacher. It was written in 1992 and published in 1999. Uh, I mean, I wrote it over 30 years. And uh, so back then I said, look like a teacher, which to me meant you like, you wore a button down shirt and maybe a tie and khakis and never wore jeans and never wore sneakers. Um, you could look like a teacher in the modern day in 2020 with a nose ring and you could be wearing jeans and you could have a tattoo, uh, but you do it in a way that has a confidence and a, okay, this is what I look like and I'm a teacher, but I, you can still look like a teacher in 2020 with these things, but I still, the idea, you could also not look like a teacher wearing a, a suit. You know, it's, it's more about, it's, a, it's an act you put on. That, I think that's what the book was about. So looking like a teacher, that's the costume you're wearing. If you can wear 
a different costume that's less sort of traditional because it, it, it's more uh, current, you still can look like a teacher in that way. Uh, I think I wrote specifically, you can't wear a nose ring in the book. So this book is still in publication. And I think people will read that and say, oh boy, this guy's really old. Well, I, it's not that I'm, you know, I wrote it when I was a kid, I was only 24 years old. Um, so then I said, act like a teacher. And this meant to not like overreact to things because by act like a teacher, I meant act like someone who's been teaching for a long time. So they don't get excited by things. They don't overreact. They, they take a second to like, I remember my fourth year of teaching uh, on the first day, I was in a new school at that time, you know, for me, and a kid walked in, a kid walked in uh, with another kid, a girl, this is a boy and a girl, and they were handcuffed together. Someone brought in fake, you know, toy handcuffs. And the guy goes, you know, mister, you know, holds up the handcuffs, says, what should we do? And this is, I'm, I'm new at this school. And I just, you know, said, go find the custodian, they'll cut the lock, you know, and just, you know, that that's how teacher acts. They don't, they're not like, oh my God, you know? So act like a teacher was literally the word act, like be an actor and do what you remember even your best teachers doing. And now I've evolved, you know, so I would say, don't smile until, until Christmas break. You know, I, I would say that. And, um, I think you can smile again. It's possible to act like a teacher and smile, but just keep in mind, like you're taking risks, you know, when you, everything you do is a bit of a risk. And what I meant was weigh out your risks. And if you're going to take a risk, be sure you're aware that you're taking a risk. And if you choose to still take that risk, you know, go ahead and, but don't, don't totally take it, you know, take it, dip your, dip your toe in the water. And, uh, and then finally I said, teach like a teacher, which meant once you've got their attention, because they think that you're, uh, you're competent, then they, you teach them. And then if they learn, if they think they're learning, at least, uh, then you win them over. Now I have a competent teacher who I can learn from. So I'm going to not push the limits. And this teacher is not going to have to put names on the boards because once you have their attention, you could do the more subtle, you know, uh, I have a whole chapter about the teacher look, you know, and we're on a podcast, but, you know, uh, you know, this like squinty kind of, kind of like you could see me. So I just kind of like, you know, I'm not amused type look. I don't, now I'm right. so old. That book was written, you know, almost 30 years ago. So, um, so now I probably don't do any of the things. No, uh, sorry. I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm still um, always ready to react to something, you know, to, to, to not overreact, but to like um, calmly react to things. So I, so I still do that stuff. But it is funny sometimes when I see like your, your, your program used it. Um, this guy, Jose Vilson, you may be aware of, of him. He's sort of an activist and he's here in New York City and he was, he was a teacher and now he's in a PhD program with a big platform of a blog and he mentioned that he used reluctant disciplinarian and I'm sure that once he was after two or three years of teaching never used any of the advice in it but it was really good advice for new teachers and I'm pretty proud of that 
that book. I've never seen any, some of the stuff in it really hasn't been said elsewhere. And it's a funny book also, although some of the things in it, uh, they weren't funny when they happened. And then in retrospect, they became funny to me and to other people. But nowadays with like, uh, they're not as funny anymore because of things I did. Like there was a time where, uh, you know, I lifted up a desk, you know, with a kid in it. You know, I was so mad and I didn't even know what to do. So I literally, I mean, I got like adrenaline, like superhuman strength. I mean, I wasn't going to throw this desk with a kid in it. And I wasn't even mad at that kid at that moment, but I just like didn't know what to do. And I lifted up a desk, you know, it was one of those old fashioned, you know, where it's all. And uh, nowadays you probably get fired for that. Um, but in the book, it was kind of like a funny scene in the book, me losing my mind. Cause it's, cause it's a book about um, how I had essentially a nervous breakdown my first year and how I, in my second year went almost too far the other way and like didn't show any emotion whatsoever and how I, um, how I had a found a happy medium uh, at the end of my second year. That was like the story. I mean, in, in reality, it took many years before I lightened up a bit and uh, I'm much lighter now, but I still know I got a job to do. And even at Stuyvesant High School, if you joke around too much, they, they, they don't learn as much because they, they, they're just, it just, they, their brain turns on a switch that says, okay, I'm not here to learn. So, um, but I'm glad that book's still in publication. The, the, the publisher was just bought by another publisher. And I hope that book is still considered current. Um, but it's been selling for almost 30 years. That's fantastic. And we got about 15 minutes left. Um, there was a thought I had about, oh, so you're talking about your first couple of years teaching. And if you're not, if you, if you haven't had thorough training in how to teach, it's just setting someone up for, for a disaster and, and having a tough couple of years. So you went through Teach for America. I went through a program called the Mississippi Teacher Corps and then worked for them. Uh, and e even though I was proud of a lot of stuff that we did at, at Teacher Corps, I sort of used to refer to us as the non-corporate version of Teach for America. And we used your book and, and did some other progressive things. At the same time, the model is we're gonna take college graduates, give them eight weeks, of training and then ask them to go perform an incredibly complicated and important task. It's just crazy. Yes, now I would say, cause I also train teachers for the New York City Teaching Fellows. And I think that uh, any of these short-term programs, summer programs uh, should be limited to secondary, you know, to, to middle and high school. Uh, but no way should anyone only have six weeks of training, eight weeks of training and go teach elementary school or any sort of uh, special education. Well, but but why, even, why even secondary school, Gary? Oh, oh, I just think it's, it's more feasible for secondary. If, 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 if you have to do it uh, in secondary, I guess you can't do as much damage. You know, you have each, 
each kid has you for one eighth of their of their learning. So uh, it, it's a little more manageable because you have this like 50 minute time period. And somehow I've seen like, I've seen people survive and not do too much damage in middle and high school their first year. Maybe just high school because middle school is, is really tricky for other reasons. Um, but ideally, nobody would be in the classroom after eight weeks. And like a place like Teach for America that has an operating budget of $300 million a year, uh, they, could, they could have each person be a teacher assistant for a year. I mean, this is just total common sense. And they make it a three-year program. Uh, at this point, I think they could get people in. It used to be we'll never get people for three years, but but I think they could. So, uh, you know, if there's massive teacher shortages and you can get some and you need to get somebody who has minimal training, uh, I would only be comfortable if it's secondary. But for a place like Teach for America and just in general, if I could have had a chance my first year to just be uh, a substitute teacher even for a year, uh, I wouldn't have had this bad first year. And I could have, uh, that would have been better for my students, you know, and for me, I wouldn't have had a nervous breakdown, but more importantly, my students suffered. So we are harming students by putting unprepared teachers into the classroom. And Teach for America, after all these years, has not done a good job at improving their training model. They still have students do student teaching with only like classes of like five or six students instead of a full class of 30, 34 students. So they're set up for problems. Uh, Teach for America sends their best teachers to the charter schools and the worst ones to the uh, non-charter schools. So I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, was interviewing a friend of mine, um, former intern, summer intern, who's now a school leader and at a charter school in New Jersey. And she went up through Teach for America. And she was saying, you know, in addition to some of the criticisms we're bringing up, that she, she was worried that she was fast-tracked as a school leader because she's a person of color and that within this world of Teach for America and charter schools and so forth, um, KIPP and so forth, that people of color are being exploited in terms of, of being fast-tracked as school leaders because for whatever reasons. Um, and you know, I, I'm sure we agree that when it comes to education, if you make decisions based on what's best for the students, you're rarely going to make a wrong decision but so, so rarely does that happen. So she was worried that, you know, th this fast tracking was going to negatively um, impact the students. Well, you know, for years, Teach for America was mostly a white organization. You know, most of the core members were white. And then in the charter school world, most of the leaders were white, you know, for all, for all these years and the students, uh, students of color. So uh, now Teach for America is making this effort to, um, to get diversity into the core. 
and they've done a good they've done a good job like it's the one good thing that they've done like recruiting uh people of color into into teach for america like that's a that's a good thing to do for a lot of reasons um now what was teach for america's reason for doing that and what's the charter school's reason you know um they they have their reasons also you know they if they're doing it if teach for america or a charter school is if they're doing it because they're trying to uh they've been criticized for not having enough people of color in leadership and they're if they're doing it because they say hey you know that's a good point we should then that's fine but if they're doing it just because they don't want to be criticized anymore you know then that's then that's not good and that becomes like exploitation so i can't say what the motive was of this charter school um but it's it i think it's a good thing but uh, a good thing for the wrong reason is still you know could still be a a, a good thing but a, but i'd rather a good thing for the right reason and that school maybe may have done it for the right reason she might be very qualified and get the added bonus of of uh students seeing people who look look like, like them you know as leaders so that's that's like a good a, a good uh, benefit but charter schools do exploit uh they they do exploit minorities at times you know in their you know advertising and and, and things like that um so that that is something that that does happen so let's end with a fun question so we're both on the upper west side of of new york what uh, we're, we're practically neighbors what are some of your favorite and the upper west side is is kind of commonly considered a restaurant desert what are some of your favorite restaurants and meals on the upper west side well first you should know that i am not a foodie by any by any stretch my wife is and i get i go to fancy restaurants sometimes and they make me very uh uncomfortable and anxious and i don't enjoy uh the meal i mean we once went to this uh, 11 madison 11 park where uh, madison that forget what it's called i think uh, you know and it was such an expensive meal and the portions were so small and we had to like eat them really slow <laughs> you know so i didn't like that so so on the upper west side i like uh i like a place called fred's on 82nd street it's just a, just a bar i like hamburgers you know a good burger um and I like ice cream and there's a Ben and Jerry's on the uh, 103rd street. So I like that, but uh, you, you won't find, oh, and I love barbecue and there's not good barbecue on the Upper West Side, but there's a place called the Mighty Quail. See, I taught in, in Houston. So I know good barbecue from Houston. There's a place called the Good Company that I, I swear I will one day fly to Houston to get the brisket sandwich there again. Like, that will be the point of my of my trip. You know, I'll also visit people. So I love barbecue, um, but I'm just a hamburger uh, and fries kind of kind of eater. Even though um, I, I guess I like sushi a little, but I won't give you a good. I'll just say I like Ben and Jerry's, and I like Mel's uh, Mel's Burgers is a good burger. But on the Upper West Side or anywhere. Um, Oh, you know, a, a, a burger, a burger from Mel's, and then uh, dessert at Ben and Jerry. What, what, what's your go-to Ben and Jerry's flavor? So I take my ice cream very seriously, 
and uh, you know, I kind of have. I, I love gonna, the I love the contradiction of I'm not a foodie. I don't care about it, but ice cream. That's serious business. Ice cream is the thing I know. You know, some people, you know, they like, they know coffee. If I'm in a right. city, I'll find whatever's supposed to be their best ice cream. So uh, I'm kind of addicted to ice cream. Um, like I can't bring a pint into the house because I'll eat the whole thing in one, one shot. Yeah, I'm the same. Uh, but when it comes to Ben and Jerry's, I currently really like Americone Dream as my favorite Ben and Jerry's flavor. And then I like uh, fish food as my second favorite Ben and Jerry's flavor. Nice. Now, in, in the Scoop store, they have chocolate peanut butter, which I really like. That's only in the Scoop in the store itself. Uh, I used to like oatmeal cookie chunk when they had that as a flavor. Um, and th those are my favorite Ben and Jerry's flavors. I mean, uh, sometimes I'll mix it up with a uh, peanut butter cup flavor or the coffee Heath Bar Crunch. Uh, Cherry Garcia, but I don't like the uh, chocolate chip cookie dough so much, uh, and I don't like mint ice cream flavors. So mm. if you go to Ben and Jerry's, oh, and I'm also very particular about how you get it. Um, <laughs> okay. So like, what kind of cup is it in? Because that that, <laughs> that that Ben and Jerry's, um, I like a I like a big uh, cylinder type, you know, you know, like a big cup. But for whatever reason, for a while, they, they started experimenting with making it like a parfait, like it was like a tall, skinny cup. And that's not a fun experience to eat a Sunday in. And then the, a few months ago, I went and they literally put my to-go Sunday in a hamburger case, you know, like the rectangular hamburger, like a, like a, like a clear hamburger case. Mm -hmm, yeah. That was what the Sunday was in. No. So that was not fun. That's not, uh, that's not optimal. So ice cream... I'm very big. Now, it could be because Ben and Jerry, the actual people, are alumni of the high school I went to in Long Island. And the two guys in 1983 came, sorry, 1985, came to my high school before they were famous in an ice cream truck and dished out ice cream to the entire school. So I feel like I might have like had like, an, if it were a movie that like when I ate that ice cream, like when right. I touched Ben and Jerry's, you know, <laughs> Can, like some kind of like spark happened and ever since then but I, I actually liked ice cream way before that also love it well I grew up in Vermont so you know I grew up on Ben and Jerry's it's funny I've been overseas for the past eight years so some of these flavors you're mentioning I'm, I'm not familiar with once I once I get that second jab I'll have to uh make a stop we'll go there together definitely yeah Gary well, look I should say this yeah I don't like eating ice cream with people why it's a solitary experience for me. <laughs> Serious business. I wait till everyone goes to sleep and I take out my pint. Because if I eat it while I'm like talking to people, I don't get to, you know, it's eaten. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, where'd that ice cream go? Well, you, you don't get to enjoy it as thoroughly. Yeah, I take it a little seriously. You know, people aren't supposed to like drink alcohol by like, if you're drinking by yourself, that's a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. I do that with the ice cream, but I will make an exception <laughs> and uh, go with you. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to it and tell everybody where they can find your work, please. So you can find my work in a couple of places. If you go to amazon.com, you can see my Reluctant Disciplinarian, my, uh, my uh, children's book that I co-wrote, my algebra regions test prep books that I wrote, and you can even find my Kindle autobiography that you can get for 99 cents that my family was so upset about that I took down for many years 
but I put back up because I'm 51 years old. And if my autobiography can't be up because my 83 year old father is upset that I poked fun at him, he's going to have to deal with it. Uh, you can find uh, my blog at. Wait, Gary. One, quick, quick, quick question, Gary. What's the name of your autobiography? It's called My Unusual Life. Okay. I'm, I'm uh, buying it right now while we're on the air. Then you can uh, you can find my blog with free stuff at um, GaryRubenstein.wordpress.com. You can go to my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/nymathteacher. It's got my math videos. Um, but the one thing you can find that you alluded to, I have a second book called Beyond Survival. It's so good, but it sold so few copies that they. Gave, they stopped publishing it and they gave me back the, um, the rights. So I am going to, over this summer, make an ebook out of it and that will be up on Amazon. But currently you can only find it, uh, some used copy from like a rare book dealer for like $200. So, but that's coming back. That's how you can find my work. Do you have any leftover copies of that book? You could yes. sell a couple for 150. Right, I don't think undercut the competition. No, no one's actually buying it for two hundred dollars. It's just gotcha. you know they have some sort of algorithm for what the price of a book should be. Right, that will be up for a dollar ninety nine over the summer. Beyond survival, I, I really like that one, but it only sold. So they gave me a fifteen hundred dollar advance for it, and it never made back the fifteen hundred dollars. I would get a royalty statement saying your royalty is negative seven hundred dollars. So. It only, it only sold a few copies, but it's so good. I'm so proud of that book. It tells how to plan lessons and it tells you how to find a job and it tells you how to communicate with teachers in the teacher's lounge. So right that, that you guys had that one going? We did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think um, if I remember correctly, like you said, the reluctant disciplinarian weaves in your own personal experience with your thoughts on classroom management. So uh, I, I think that is more engaging to someone who's about to be a first-year teacher, but I agree that the second book is the one that's more valuable. The nuts and bolts. Well, tell them to, if anyone's listening, they can, if, if it's after about July uh, 2021, it's up. Great. Gary, looking forward to um, getting Ben and Jerry's ice cream and, and more conversations, and thank you for taking the time today. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. And that was my interview with Gary Rubenstein. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.